Listen, uh, welcome to Bayview Glen this morning. If you don't know uh, who I am, my name is Lucas Cooper. I'm the lead pastor here. And every Sunday morning at 9, 15, and 11, we gather together to lift up Jesus and to hear from his word. And that's what we just did in worship is we declared the praises of him who brought us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And now what we're going to do is look into the word of God together. And before we do that, I just want to pray and ask God's blessing on this time. So would you join your hearts with me in prayer? God, we just declared those things about you. You are our strong tower, our faithful friend. Healer, triumphant, glorious and mighty, omnipresent. God, your name is in lights today, and we give you glory and focus and attention. God, in these next moments, as we open up your word, would you speak to hearts, God, speak to Uh, me, speak to those who call themselves uh, your followers, and even to those who maybe are here for the first time and just kind of getting to know this God thing and this uh, Christianity thing and this Jesus thing. God, would you even speak to their hearts in this uh, moment? Spirit of God, we invite you to work and move. This is your time. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, amen. Well, listen, today we start a brand new series called Questions questions, everything you ever wanted to know about God, but were afraid to ask. And so here's what we've done on our website, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, personal conversations, emails, we've collected questions about God. And, and we didn't know where those questions were coming from, so some of these questions were questions that, that people who call themselves Christ followers asked. And, and then some of them, are, we, we don't know where they came from, so they could come from, a, from an atheist, from an agnostic, from a, from a Satanist, from a, from a Catholic, from a Christian. We, we, we had no idea where they came from, but, but really we wanted to get kind of a cut a wide swath of folks that we asked, hey, what question would you have for God? So one of the things that we did was we posed that question to the kids in our children's ministry. We went to the kids and we said, hey kids, listen, if you could ask God one question or you could ask one question about God, what would it be? I wanted to share some with you this morning. Is that all right? So one here is, how big is God? Totally legitimate question. We will not answer it today, but, but it was there. It was a question. Uh, how were dinosaurs created? Good question. Um, can I drive tanks in heaven? <laughs> the answer is absolutely. Uh, how did you become God? The answer is uh, put together a great resume and just nailed the interview. That's essentially how he became God. Here's, a, here's a, if I had one question to ask God, here's what it would be. Why are boys so ugly, hideous, and disgusting? It's <laughs> exactly what it says. The secret things belong to the Lord. I don't know. I don't know. Um, so, so as we collected these questions, both from our kids and from uh, our website, Instagram, Twitter, by the way, you can still post those, get on our Facebook, get on our Instagram, Twitter, get on our website, post those questions. Uh, we'll field those questions as we go these next five weeks. But as we collected them, we kind of had a lot of folks ask similar questions and we, get, and we began to kind of put them into categories. And so this one category of question that we're going to answer today, we're going to let the scripture speak to is this. This, God, 
are you there? God, are you, are you there? Do you exist? Because before we can talk about having a relationship with God, or before we can talk about um, what God might expect of me, or what he might be like, we've got to talk about whether or not God exists. So today, that's the question that we come to, the question that so many of you, and so many of your friends, and family members, and co-workers, and service providers asked, was simply this, we've kind of boiled it down, but, it, but a lot of folks ask the same question is, God, are you really there? So a couple of goals I have today. The, the, the first one is this. Believe me, I am not under the false assumption that I am going to convince an atheist today to believe in God. Like, I'm not, I, I understand that, I get that. If you're an atheist in this place today, if you don't believe in God, we're so grateful that you're here. We're going to talk about why we believe in God or why I believe in God and why the scripture says there's a God today. We're going to talk about that. But I'm not like under this false assumption. Here's, here's my one goal for you if you're an atheist this morning, that you would walk out with some questions of your own. That's it. That's it. That you would walk out of this place today and go, gosh, maybe... Oh, wow, I didn't really think about that. Or you know what? I'm not going to tell the pastor that I think this, but maybe there's a God. I don't know. But I'll file it away in the back of my mind. If I can just plant that little seed and you have some questions of your own, when you walk out today, I will consider this a successful morning for you. Again, I don't pretend to have all the answers, and I don't know that I'm necessarily going to convince you to believe in God today. But if you just walk out with some questions of your own, I'll consider that a success. Number two, if you believe in God, if you're a thief, especially if you're a Christ follower, here's my prayer as we look into this question today. God, are you there? I pray that it would bolster your faith, that you would know that the faith that we have in God and in Jesus specifically is not just some like weird superstition thing. It's actually a reasoned, logical, thought out faith. And today as we walk away, your faith would be renewed, revived. It would be supported and bolstered by what we talk about this morning. A quick caveat is this. Uh, I am a pastor. I'm the lead pastor here at Bayview Glen. So I want you to know, just, I'll just declare my bias right now. I am a theist. I believe in God. If I didn't, they would likely fire me. At least I hope so, right? So, so here's my quick caveat. Um, atheists in the place this morning. I'm really going to try to describe your views or an atheist views with accuracy, okay? So I think that atheism is actually well-reasoned and logical and thought out. I just, I think it's problematic in places and I've arrived at a different conclusion than you. I don't think you're stupid, I don't think you're weird, we just disagree and I'm going to tell you why. But, but when, I, when I talk about atheism, I don't wanna like set up a straw man and just make it really easy to shoot down. Like, you know, atheists, they think everyone should run around without pants on, boom, I'm a theist, that's why. That's, please, like that's not, I'm sorry, that's a little bit silly, but I, I watch uh, pastors especially and apologists do this all the time. They say, well, atheists believe this. And the reality is I look at what atheists write and I'm like going, Dawkins doesn't say that. And Harris doesn't say that. Those guys don't say that. Why are you? Because it makes it easier to shoot down. I just want to tell you, I'm going to do my very best to accurately represent the view of an atheist and to tell you why scripture comes into combat with that today. 
So here we are. Here's our question. God, are you there? A philosopher named Alvin Plantinga, he says there's actually two to three dozen compelling proofs for the existence of God. Two to three dozen compelling proofs for the existence of God. We're going to go through all 36. No, we're not going to go through all 36. I've picked four. I've picked four that are especially compelling for me and why I've arrived at this conclusion that there is a God. I've just picked four, and so let's start with first. First, compelling proofs for the existence of God, creation. Creation. And notice that I call it creation because I believe there is a capital C creator, a personal God that created all that we see and all that we don't see. A lot of folks might say uh, the universe. The universe is a proof for the existence of God. You can call it the universe if you'd like. You can call it galaxies if you'd like. That's okay. I call it creation because I believe there is a capital C creator. Here is the atheist view as to how the universe, and, and this is very, very simplified. I get it. But again, I want to do it with accuracy, even though it's a little bit overly simplified. Here's the atheist view as to how the universe came into being. The universe began as a singularity. That is, it's a, it was a very hot, dense black hole. And that space began to expand outward very, very quickly. And it's still expanding today. That initial expansion or force or energy caused the formulation of atoms, stars, galaxies, and eventually resulted in human life. That's the atheist view as to how the universe came into being. Uh, a guy named Stephen Hawking, many of you have heard of Stephen Hawking. He wrote a br brief history of time. He's a scientist. He wrote this. Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. That's what that is called the Big Bang, that initial black hole of force that began to expand outwards. And Hawking says, almost everyone now believes that the universe had a beginning at the Big Bang. I just want to tell you real quick, I'm not opposed to the Big Bang as a concept in its purest form. In its purest form. There are just some implications regarding the Big Bang that I have an issue with. Number one, causality. Causality. So everything in our universe is contingent upon something. Everything in our universe was ultimately caused by the Big Bang. So we live in a universe where everything has an ultimate cause, correct? Everything has an ultimate cause. Here's my question. What caused the Big Bang? Scientists can't, they can't tell us. They can't tell us. Atheists can't tell us what caused the Big Bang. So we live in a universe where everything is caused, and the ultimate cause is or was the Big Bang. Let's just grant you that for the sake of argument. My question is, who or what caused the Big Bang? Francis Collins is a scientist. He mapped the human DNA under the Bill Clinton administration. We have uh, Francis Collins to thank when we, like, you know, transplant organs and save babies' lives and things with the mapping the human genome. Francis Collins calls the human genome and the DNA the fingerprints of God. He is a very, very well-respected scientist. He just so happens to be a theist and a Christian. Listen to what Francis Collins says about the Big Bang. He says, I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself. 
And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that that had to be outside of nature. So here's, here's the issue with creation. Even if you grant the Big Bang, even if you grant that idea, there has to be an ultimate cause. There has to be an uncaused cause. There has to be something, as Francis Collins states, outside of nature that creates nature. A theist or an atheistic view can't answer that question. A theistic view says that ultimate cause is God. Second thing that we perceive in nature that tells us that God exists, order. Order. Francis Collins points out that scientists agree that there are 15 constants that allow for human life. 15. Like the gravitational constant, the speed of light, and every one of those constants is like one in a million chance, or even one in a million million chance that all of those constants would come together on the same planet at the same time in order to sustain any kind of life. So this is how an atheist would answer this question of order. An atheist would say, uh, there are quite possibly infinite number of galaxies and universe out there. Quite possibly infinite number of galaxies and universe. And odds are, one of them could support life, even human life. And we just got lucky, and that's where we're at. That's what an atheist would say, that just the odds of the thing, the sheer odds, because there's so many out there, that this uh, planet has order. It sustains all of those constants so it can sustain human life. We'll go back to Plantinga for a minute. Plantinga says, let's imagine that you're sitting at a poker table, and there's six guys at a poker table, and one guy at the poker table gets dealt four aces, 20 hands in a row. Now, now, that guy could respond this way. He could say, uh, look, there are quite possibly infinite number of universes out there, an infinite number of galaxies. We just so happen to be living on the one where I got dealt 20 hands of four aces 20 times in a row. What would you say? Horse hockey. That's not true. That's not how odds work. If you don't think that, if you wouldn't say horse hockey, I have an open poker game at my house on Tuesday night. I would love for you to be there. That's not true. (laughs) Let's go back to Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking says, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as an act of God who intended to create beings like us. Because creation has order, and creation is caused. It has an ultimate cause, and that cause is the creator. I believe in God. I am a theist. Now, watch this. These observations are not brand new. In fact, they're 2,000 years old. If you have your Bible, open it up with me. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. Scripture's up here on the screen. You can follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew back in front of you, the seat back in front of you. You can grab that out of the seat back and follow along with us. Here's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1. It's about three-quarters of the way through your Bible. Romans is a very interesting book because many of the books in the New Testament, they address a particular doctrinal issue or a particular issue of behavior. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a follower of Jesus, and he wrote the book of Romans 
to the church at Rome. And the interesting thing about the book of Romans, it's the most systematic treatment of the Christian faith. It's got start to finish, tip to tail, the entire Christian faith right there in the book of Romans. So in Romans chapter one, Paul starts off with this idea of the existence of God. And look at what Paul says in verse 20. He says, for his, that's God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clear perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. We can look at the universe, Paul says, we can look at creation and we can deduce that it has an ultimate cause and that cause has to be something outside of itself. We can see order and design and we can, and, and, and God created those things in order to kind of put himself on display. Let's read this again. Look up here on the screen. We, we've got some words highlighted. Again, for his invisible attributes, that which we cannot see about God and cannot experience, namely, what are those things? His power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived. They're there for us to see ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The first argument that I'm going to make for the existence of God to answer this question, God, are you there, is this, that creation points to a creator. If you're jotting notes down, just jot that down. Just jot those few words down. Creation points to a creator. If you are an atheist, you have to answer those questions. What about order? What about causality? And there's a whole lot of other things there, but we'll just leave it there for now. In my opinion, as far as I've read, studied, whatever, uh, the atheist uh, response to the creation of the universe and order and causality is unsatisfactory. Therefore, I'm a theist. Second argument for the existence of God. Second argument is morality. Morality. So atheists have struggled for generations, and I'm not kidding. They've struggled for generations to come up with a working description of morality, of why it exists, of what it is, of what the difference is between right and wrong, how we know right and wrong. Why are there moral principles that are just always true? They're not relative. They're not subjective. They are objective. Why? So, Immanuel Kant, Adam Smith, Sartre, uh, which I know is like the worst butchering of a French name, French friends here, but, but I'm from the U.S., and so that's what we do is we butcher names. Nietzsche, they all, they all were atheistic philosophers who said, okay, how do we answer the question of morality? Where does this uh, innate sense of right and wrong come from? Here are some of the things that they've proposed. Number one, that morality evolved along with us. So what they would argue is that as the human race evolved, these innate senses of right and wrong, of what right and wrong is, evolved with the human race as a survival mechanism, essentially. So those who, who were loyal, those who were courageous, those who demonstrated the things that we would together call good had a better chance of survival than those who demonstrated the things that we would call bad, and that's where morality comes from. 
Or they say that morality is really a pragmatic thing. It's a pragmatic, morality kind of works. If you do good stuff, it kind of works. And so it's, it's pragmatic. Or they've suggested that morality is reasoned. Uh, Adam Smith suggested the invisible hand. Some of you that read that stuff. Uh, there's other people that have suggested that morality is reasoned. So if I think real hard, I can, I can get to the point where I arrive at this, uh, the, the difference between good and bad, the difference between right and wrong, and moral principles. New atheists, guys like Dawkins, Dennett, Sam Harris, uh, they would suggest that everyone has a foundational moral knowledge, that they have some kind of moral intuition inside of them. Now, the problem with all of these answers to me, now listen close, it explains what causes moral behavior. Evolution causes moral behavior. Reason causes moral behavior. Pragmatism causes moral behavior. Here's what those uh, explanations of morality do not explain. It cannot account for what makes moral principles true. They cannot account for what makes moral principles true. They tell us why people are moral, but not what makes moral principles true true. Now look, I'm not saying that atheists are morally corrupt people. Please understand me. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm simply contending this morning that the atheist explanation as to what makes moral principles true is inadequate for me. Here's what a theist would suggest, that God is the definition of right and wrong. He's the definition of these things that we would hold to and say these things are inherently good. Justice, goodness, courage, kindness, and all of these moral principles, we would agree they're not relative, they're applicable in every situation and every circumstance. So how did we get those? Keep your finger in Romans there and flip backwards to Jeremiah chapter 31. If you, don't, if you can't find that real quickly, that's okay, uh, but it, it's up here on the screen. Uh, in the Old Testament, God makes promises to his people. They're called covenants. There are five of them. We're not going to review the quick and dirty history of Old Testament theology here. But, but, but Jeremiah chapter 31 is called the new covenant. So listen, listen close now. God is the definition. He is the objective, true north definition of morality. And listen to what he does. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So here's what God is saying. I've actually put my moral code, my moral compass, my law, I have written that on the hearts of men. I've put my fingerprints, so to speak, my thumbprints on your heart so that you know you have an innate sense of morality, good, bad, right, and wrong, and you know that those moral principles are true. Go back to Romans chapter 2. Chapter 2. Now, look, look what Paul says about this promise, that God is the objective truth for morality. He makes moral principles true, and he's written them on our hearts. Look what Romans 2 says. It says, for when Gentiles, uh, this is verse 14, sorry, verse 14, up here on the screen. For when Gentiles... 
That's, that's people who don't know God, don't have a sense of God. They don't have the law. By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So here's what he's saying. He's saying people who don't know God and don't have a sense of God, they don't have a moral code. They don't have something written in front of them. They don't have the Ten Commandments. Like, you don't know any of that stuff. But what do they still do? By nature, they do what the law requires. By nature, they do good. By nature, they do right. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. Why? Look at verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. There it is. Their conscience also bearing witness. So here's what Paul is saying. God is the objective, truthful morality. That's where morality comes from. He has written it on our hearts, and so we have an innate sense of good, bad, right, and wrong, and we know those moral principles are true because God himself has hardwired it into you and me as his creation. Morality is not a proof for the existence of God, but it's definitely a clue. It's what Tim Keller would call the fingerprints of God, and it points us in the direction of theism. God has stamped the human psyche, soul, spirit, mind, whatever you want to call it, with moral principles. And when those moral principles are violated, something pricks our conscience, and it causes us to feel guilty or like we did something wrong. Let's do an experiment together just to prove this. Everybody close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close, 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 close. I still see eyes open. Close them. All right? Think of the most shameful thing you've ever done. Not for too long, because some of you is kind of crazy. All right? So now open your eyes. Look at me. Everybody got it? Got it? Most shameful thing you've ever done. Now turn to someone you don't know and tell them about it. Who told you that was wrong? Who told you that was uncomfortable? Who told you to feel guilty? I would reject the premise that that guilt, that innate sense of right and wrong and shame, that didn't evolve. That's not because of pragmatism, because it works or doesn't work. That's because the God of the universe has imprinted this, uh, this sense of morality on our hearts. It points to the existence of God. God is the true north for morality, and he's encoded it on the hearts of men. That's how we know there's a God. Number three. Number three, love. There's other philosophers that would call this the argument from desire, I'm going to call it a little something different today. I'm just going to call it love. There's a a modern atheist. He runs with, uh, some of you guys know these names, uh, Sam Harris and um, uh, Richard Dawkins that wrote The God Delusion and other things. It's a guy named Daniel Dennett. Listen to what Daniel Dennett says about love. Where does love come from? Listen close. Everything we value, from sugar and sex and money, to music, to love and religion, we value for reasons. Lying behind and distinct from our reasons are evolutionary reasons, free-floating rationales that have been endorsed by natural selection. So if you ask Daniel Dennett, where does love come from, especially romantic love, here's what Dennett would say. Love is a biochemical response that exists only because it supports the survival of mankind. 
We can't survive if we don't procreate. Procreation is a lot easier when we're having sex. Sex is a lot easier when we're in love. Therefore, romantic love supports survival. So love has evolved as part of the human experience. In other words, Dennett and the modern atheists would say, love is a neurological, hardwired response to particular data. Very pragmatic approach. I don't buy it. I don't buy it that love is evolved and it's pragmatic and it's for the sake of the survival of the human race. I don't buy it for two reasons. One, I'm married and that's like the worst thing to say on date night, right? I love you for evolutionary reasons, right? That's, that doesn't bode well. Married man, you know, that's like the least romantic thing you can say. The second reason why I don't buy it is that when we talk about love, we are talking about far more than sexual appetite, aren't we? We're talking about far more than something that supports survival. We're talking about family, about friendship, about affection, joy, hope, so much more. Love is far more than a biochemical response. Here's what a theist would say, where does love come from? A theist would say that God designed us to be in relationship. God designed us to be in relationship with one another. Genesis verse one, uh, Genesis chapter one, verse 26. You don't have to turn there. This is what God said. said. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, we're gonna have to do some theology 101 here and I'm gonna breeze through it, but, but look at, let us make man in our image. Everybody see the plural there? In our likeness. Here's what the Christian faith would say. Here's what orthodoxy says, that God is eternally existent. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when God said, us, let us make man in our image, it's talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally pre-existent in community in a loving relationship. One God, monotheism, but eternally existent in three persons, that's Trinitarian theology. So, listen, if God makes man in his own image and there's only one man, where is there a prob- problem? Because God exists in relationship himself. God exists in relationship himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he made man in his own, plural, our image. Hence the reason in Genesis chapter 2 that God says this, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then God creates woman. Don't get caught up on that word helper. It's like, is that servant? Is that what that means? No. You know, uh, that word helper in the Old Testament was also used for God. It's mostly used for God. God is a helper, shield, defense. It's also used for woman here. So God creates woman. Why? It's not good for man to be alone. God created us. He hardwired us to be in loving relationship because God is in loving relationship. It didn't evolve. It's not pragmatic. It's because God designed it that way. Love and relationship in general, by the way, points to the existence of a God who created it that way. And he created us to give and receive love. Creation points to God. Morality, the existence of morality at all, the existence of love at all points to God. Number four, longing. If you're taking notes, jot this down. 
Because this one gets personal. More than philosophy, more than, more than, more than uh, just kind of talking about these general truths, this one gets really personal. Longing. I'm going to say this really slowly and let it sink in. There is in each one of us a longing for God. Just let us sit there for a minute. There is in each one of us a longing for God. Even atheists recognize it, and they have to explain it. They have to explain, why do we long for worship? Why do we long to be in awe of something? Why do we long for something bigger and greater than us? Why do we long for God? Here's their explanation. That the idea of God is a product of evolution and a survival mechanism for the human race. That's the atheist argument. It's, it's overly simplified, I get it, but that's what Dawkins would say, that's what Harris would say, that's what, that's what just about every atheist philosopher would say, is that longing for God is a part of the evolutionary process, and it's there as a survival mechanism for the human race. But the Bible sees it a different way. The Bible suggests that just like God has hardwired us with a longing for love and affection, the Bible suggests that God has hardwired us with a longing to worship something. And the correct response is to worship Him. And we're going to fulfill that longing by hook or by crook. Even those who actively reject God are going to fulfill that longing. I'm going to say that again. Even those who actively reject God, even the atheist, is going to fulfill the longing for something bigger and greater. Look at, look at Romans 1. We'll come back to that statement in a minute. Look at Romans 1, verse 25. We're spending a lot of time in Romans this morning, Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. Romans 1, verse 25. Paul is talking about those who actively reject God, that dig their heels in, that say no to that longing, and they suppress that longing. Here's what he says about, uh, about those folks. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now look at the words that are highlighted up here. What is it that Paul is saying? Those who actively reject God, they don't just stop worshiping altogether. They don't just squash that longing altogether. What do they do? They worship creature rather than creator. Let me just tell you a few things that we could uh, fill in that blank. If we left a blank, worshiped and served the creature, if we took creature out, what do we worship as a culture when God is not in his rightful place, when we don't fulfill that longing with God or for God. We worship our hobbies. We worship work. We worship relationships. We worship success. Back where I'm from in Phoenix, Arizona, up north, there's a place called Sedona. Everybody up there is worshiping nature. We worship boy bands, One Direction. 
We worship our life mission. This is where I'm going. This is where I'm headed. So I am in awe of what is on the horizon for me. We worship a cause. We worship something. Why? Because we have a longing for something greater than ourselves. We've got to find something greater than ourselves. But that longing, according to Scripture, goes unfulfilled unless we serve the Creator, unless we recognize that there is a God. You have an appetite, there's food to fill it. You long for relationships, there's people. You're tired, there's sleep. If you have a longing for God, there's God. He hardwired us to worship Him. And when we're honest with ourselves, when no one else is listening, when no one else is looking, in the quietness of our own souls, we have to admit that there's an unfulfilled longing in our hearts. Our soul, as the scripture says, longs for the presence of God, longs for something to worship, and when we replace it with things that aren't worthy of our worship and we reject God, we have a problem. That longing points to the existence of God. For our purposes today, here's all we're going to suggest, that that longing for God points to the existence of God. It's not a survival mechanism that has developed with the evolutionary process. That longing points to the existence of God. Here's the four things that we've established today. Four things that point to the existence of God. Creation. Morality. Love. And longing. If there is no God, from whence do those things come? The atheist explanation is unsatisfactory. Thus, I believe in capital G, God. Ravi Zacharias, who's a a famous Christian apologist, tells a very interesting story about going to a university in Ohio and he went into the very first deconstructionist building. So it's ironic to me that a deconstructionist is constructing stuff, but that's beside the point. The point is this, that deconstructionist philosophy essentially says this, we're going to take apart everything. We're going to unravel everything. We're going to unravel every argument. Life's got no meaning, and we're just going to take it all apart. And so what does a deconstructionist building look like? Well, it's got stairs that lead to nowhere. You just walk up and you're like, that, that's, that's it. There's no door, no nothing. I'm just nowhere. It's got pillars hanging down from the ceiling for no apparent reason. It's got big holes in the wall that just go outside. No window, no nothing. Because this deconstructionist designed the building to be random, to be, uh, feel like it's, there's chance and it leads to nowhere and it's nothing just to represent this philosophy of deconstructionism and its, and its foundation is atheist philosophy. There is no God, so there is no purpose, there is no creation, there is no morality, there is no longing, there, there's none of that stuff. And so this building is going to represent that deconstructionist philosophy. I loved Ravi Zacharias' uh, response when he saw that building. Here's what he wondered. Did you do that with the foundation as well? When you built the building, did you put random stuff in random places? Did you cut holes in it for no apparent reason? Because when we remove the foundation that is theism, 
we lose purpose, we lose morality, we lose longing, we lose love, we lose meaning, we lose all of those things. And, and don't just believe Ravi Zacharias, who is a theist and an apologist, believe Louise Anthony, who, who's a very well-respected uh, professor at Ambrose University and an atheist. I read an essay of hers this week. Here's how he, she concludes. She writes this, I want to close by conceding that there are things one loses in giving up God, and they are not insignificant. Most importantly, you lose the guarantee of redemption. Suppose that you do something morally terrible, something for which you cannot make amends, something perhaps for which no human being could ever be expected to forgive you. I imagine that the promise made by many religions that God will forgive you if you are truly sorry is a thought that would bring enormous comfort and relief. Amen. You cannot have that if you're an atheist. In consequence, you must live your life and make your choices with the knowledge that every choice you make contributes in one way or another to the only value your life can have. That's an atheist speaking. When we remove God from the foundation of the building, the thing gets real shaky real quick. We can live as practical atheists. We can live as if there is no God. But when we reject God, those things crumble at their very core. Would you join your hearts with me in prayer? And whoever you are this morning, whatever background you come from, whether you're an atheist or a theist, whether you're a Catholic or an evangelical, whether you're a Buddhist or, or Muslim, whatever background you come from, uh, in just this moment of quiet before the Lord with eyes closed, just to kind of block out distractions, there's no secret uh, magic formula that when we close our eyes, God hears us, but, but just with distractions blocked out in that quietness, here, here's what was very interesting about the questions that we fielded over the last number of weeks. That a lot of folks ask this question, God, are you there? God, are you there? Do you exist? But there was this undertone in just about every question we took. And this was the un undertone. God, are you there for me? So no matter where you are, where you come from, God hears your thoughts. You don't have to say it out loud. He's God. He knows. So my encouragement this morning, even if you don't believe God exists, or if you believe God exists and, and you're just not sure what that relationship looks like yet, and, and you just haven't quite connected with Him, God is not afraid of your questions. <laughs> Never has been. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. We try to hide stuff. We can't. So my encouragement this morning is, would you just bring that before the Lord? God, are you there for me? Over the next four weeks, as we dive into more of these questions, we're going to talk about the answer to that question right there. Not just, God, are you there? But, God, are you there for me? Pray with me. Creator God, we are so glad that you have left us some breadcrumbs on this planet that point us to a conclusion that you are there, that you exist. 
And God, besides the fact that, that those things point to your love for us and your redemptive plan, and they point us to your holiness, to your justice, they point us to your grace and your desire to have a relationship with us, but today, just for our purposes, they point us to, to even a concept of who you might be, that you've created, that you've uh, imprinted or encoded this, uh, this sense of morality on our hearts. God, that you've given us love because we're made in your image. And God, you've given us a longing inside for you that points us to you being there. God, in this moment, we remember that you love us. God, that as we long for you, that longing can be fulfilled. You are our creator, our friend, our helper, shield and defense. Speak to us, O oh God, even in the weeks to come as we unfold and answer these questions about you. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said, amen.